This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Uh, greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg. Uh, this is another exciting episode of the Remnant Podcast. I'm a little bleary-eyed because I had to wake up at 4.30 this morning to come back from New York, where I had was one of the roasters of Ben Shapiro last night. And um, it all went well. It was the Commentary Magazine roast. And one of my fellow roasters was uh, Ted Cruz. And for a comedian, he's a fantastic senator. Um, and, uh, and then this morning I had a meeting with a bunch of senators. Hold up. I got a, I got a diagram that keep going, but I don't understand yet. Keep going. Okay. So then this morning I had a meeting on the Capitol Hill with a bunch of, uh, senators. I normally don't like to meet with politicians because they're politicians. And, uh, but it was a very nice meeting. I can't, I can't get into the details about it because it was off the record and it was mostly about how to get rid of SAS. And now we have every meeting long awaited podcast with none other than the, uh, uh, the the pride of Nebraska, the 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 hawker of R- Runza's, uh, Ben Sass. Ben, welcome back to the podcast. It is good to be here. Um, I didn't bring you a Runza, sadly. You know, uh, I saw ads for Runzas throughout Nebraska on our cross country drive, and um, um, I did a lot of reading up on the Runza. It doesn't it sound like great. a man who had the courage to eat that great German Russian food. Uh, no, I, I did. I would have, but we just never felt the need to pull off the highway and go in search of them. And our state is 450 miles east to west. You never took a leak? Uh, not at a place that wanted to sell me a Runza. <laughs> so there's that. Um, For those of you who don't know, among your listeners, there are 105 Runza stores in America, and 98 of them are in Nebraska. We know what we like. Yeah, but so is that misleading? Because... Is it possible that since Runza is basically a derivative of the Volga German pierogi, that uh, perhaps there are other places that sell Runzas? They just don't call them Runzas? Oh, you wash your mouth out. <laughs> That's ridiculous. <laughs> All right. So last night at the at the roast, um, which was um, which was fun, and at one point I said that I saluted Ben Shapiro's ability to um, uh, both praise and criticize the president when necessary, and that he is willing to take shots at the president, although he can't hold a candle to Ted Cruz's father when it comes to taking shots at the president. Um, uh, uh, Ted has a signed bullet mounted in his office, actually. Does he really? Yeah. From Oswald? From the assassination. Oh, okay. That's that's awesome. Uh, But afterwards... My friend Cliff Asnes, who you know as well, he said that he's been listening more and more to Glop and less and less to The Remnant because this podcast is too dour and too downbeat. So we're going to try and keep this upbeat. So we'll start just to Can get we have Sean Spicer's shirt on just to make it a little more upbeat? You yes. Saw, you saw his shirt. I did see his shirt. I did, I did not watch Dancing with the Stars because I was busy and because I wouldn't watch it anyway. But uh, I've never seen the show. But if, if that's the kinds of shirts they have, 
Um, uh, you know, I just want to know if he ever said to the producers, I don't want to be a pirate. Um, uh, never mind a really flamboyantly gay pirate. Um, but not that, not that Sean Potter is gay, just that, uh, uh, he played into certain stereotypes of what one would dress like in 1970s if whatever. We'll move on. Um, so I've when, never seen Jack coach you. I've seen you use yeah. him as as a Jack was getting nervous this. there. Jack was but, very yeah. uncomfortable. So I'm again. I'm like on a vision quest. I, like I, there are only three people in this room, and I still see like four half naked Indians because I'm just so tired. So, um, what do you think of the uh, Dancing with the Stars episode? I, I've I've never seen. What do you think about stars. former administration officials doing Dancing with the Stars? I mean, it's it's boring to say what needs to be said, but our politics are bizarre, right? Like everybody's desperate to do constant instapunditry, and they want to. Uh, uh, there's there's this weird swallowing of Capitol Hill by reality TV, and I think it's bad for both. I think reality TV is probably better without politicians, and I think politics are better with less reality TV. So I don't know if you saw it, but. Um... Uh, things escalated a notch when Governor Mike, former Governor Mike Huckabee, um, who I think has some infomercial selling like sham wows on another network, um, tweeted something in support of Spicer. And Spicer said in response, "Thank you, Governor Mike Huckabee. Clearly, the judges aren't going to let aren't going to be with me. Let's send a message to hashtag Hollywood that those of us who stand for Christ, hashtag Christ." Um, won't hashtag Christ is like a great title for a book. Won't be discounted. May God bless you. Um, oh, is, Mary Mother! Isn't that a just like taking the Christian identity politics victim culture thing? First of all, why is he standing for Christ? He should be dancing for Christ. That's what the thing's about, right? Uh, I'm I'm no professional theologian, but uh-huh. I kind of heard that Jesus Christ came to save sinners, not to uh, get game show votes. I don't. I'm no expert on this, and you and I could probably debate theology another time, but I think the culture warring gets weird really, yep. really fast. This is not what uh, Christians in Rome were sent to the lion's den for. Um, though, if I ever become czar. <laughs> <laughs> so, no, but this, uh, this gets something I talked to Mary Eberstadt about earlier this on the first podcast this week. Um, what a great new book, by the way. Yeah, it's oh, a really great book. I've just been reading it the last three days. Yeah. Um, um, uh, the And the critiques in the back, too, just because they're short. It's a good way to kind of dive into yeah. the book. Peter Thiel has one that I partly agree with, partly disagree with, and he partly agreed and partly disagree with the book, and Mark Lilla. And there's just some re- – it's a really, really good book. Everybody should pick it up. Although – Lilla's was the only one that really engaged heavily with the book, it felt like. Um, Rod Dreher, my friend Rod Dreher, wrote a really interesting essay about Rod Dreher. Um, but uh, that said, one of the things I was talking about with her is that this thing that, that, that Chuck Todd pointed out to me, and I know he's your favorite pundit. I don't even know what that means, but go Tip, ahead. Tip O'Neill is um, – Tip O'Neill is now wrong, right? Tip O'Neill said all politics is local, and almost everything these days – is about national politics, right? Everything is nationalized. We're living in a sort of a nationalized culture. I know you're trying to run for office in a specific place, and I was just talking to these senators and all the rest, but the way our media treats everything is that 
partly discuss of Trump, but everything becomes nationalized into this sort of general culture war thing so that even Dancing with the Stars is about us versus them. Yeah, I mean, so surely what you're saying is true and troubling, but I also think it's a bubble. Like, I just don't think this is sustainable. I uh-huh. think people are smoking crack around the clock and in D.C. and maybe New York and surely on Twitter. But I don't think most people really approach it this way. I mean, you remember that you and I have talked about this before, that sociological study called Tribes that mm-hmm. came out maybe about this time last year. But it it inf- makes me think about a two-by-two two matrix when I'm thinking about the voter. No, maybe not a two-by. There are two dimensions on a scatter plot, and we tend to talk as if right versus left is the most important continuum. Right. And I'm the third most conservative guy in the Senate. So I'm, I'm at the right end of that spectrum, and I obviously care about and have thought through what I believe and why I believe it. But I think the other dimension, the y-axis, is more important, which is political engagement slash addiction. Mm-hmm. And what we want what we want there for a healthy republic, I think, is kind of a middle brow, middle tiering. You don't want people that are completely disengaged and unaware of what's happening in political life. But I also don't want my neighbors to be at the top end of that continuum constantly obsessing about what's happening in D.C. every 17 seconds. Like, I, I don't think that's healthy. And I think most Americans are overwhelmingly checked out from that conversation. They think it's BS. And so what's happened is the denominator is shrinking of people who are paying attention to politics. But the numerator of those people who are paying attention to politics, it's the only thing they're paying attention to, and it swallows every other conversation. But, I mean, it's really significant that Sean Hannity and Rachel Maddow, the two most watched cable programs, both have less than 1% of America watching them. Sure. No, I agree with that. But, I mean, there's the flip side to it in the sense that uh, even for people who don't pay attention to politics, there is this that much attention to the nitty-gritty of politics. There is a sense in which your, your wokeness, right, your cultural uh, relationship towards politics defines you more than it used to. In certainly among elites, which is a part of the major part of the problem. Yes, but I, I just I, I want to make sure I keep an asterisk pushing back that I, as somebody who's living off a campaign bus most of the last six weeks, um, the vast majority of regular folks, and I don't mean that in a Sarah Palin, sure. you know, real America way, is is rural. I just mean I think dinner tables in New York City and dinner tables in rural Nebraska. Most people aren't watching the CNN Chiron. Sure. And, and I think that there's more and more fatigue with it. And my experience out in the field is it, it's amazing when you spend four days in D.C. voting and then you come home and ride a bus for three or four days over a long weekend. None of the topics that people are obsessing about in D.C. are coming up in yeah. rural Nebraska. Yeah. People really don't care. They're talking about Husker football and they're talking about their kids and they're worried about big, big national problems. But there, there's not this sort of insta-commentary uh, addiction out there. So um, I will get vilified by um, the legions of listeners of this podcast if we don't actually talk about some politics stuff. Um, which I know you don't want to do. And oh, that's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying, I, I'm, let's talk about whatever you want to talk about, but I'm, my argument is not anti-politics. It's long-term politics over short-term screaming chirons. No, 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 I, I find, I, I agree with that. And I, I, I just, and I, I, I want to come back to all that stuff, but I know you're pressed for time and I want to check these boxes so we can get out of the way. Um, how psyched were you when Donald Trump endorsed you? Uh, that was surprising. Uh-huh. So what two what, last week, week ago, uh-huh. uh, on Tuesday night, the president decided to endorse and, uh, I've, and you truly had no idea it was coming. 
I had never asked for it, and he and I talk fairly regularly on policy and some personnel and nom stuff. And one time he had said to me that he was thinking about doing this, uh-huh. and I just kept the conversation going because I intentionally didn't want to ask for that. Uh-huh. Um, so he he did it, and that's nice, and I told him thank you. I uh-huh. mean, I'm running my own race, and uh, – as somebody who's never done this before, I've run for office one time in my life. I'm one of eight in the Senate. And we were dang close to a coin toss for six months at our house about running again. And when we decided to run again, it's because we want to fight for longer term stuff. So I don't want – I want to be talking about 2030 more than 2020. So I don't plan to spend most of my campaign talking about Donald Trump. Uh-huh. But – on net in a state that's as Trumpy as mine is, and he and I have roughly the same numbers. We're both uh-huh. uh, 80-20 popular with Republicans in Nebraska, but the 20 that don't like him and the 20 that don't like me are probably mutually exclusive sets. Right, right. Uh, so I have you know lots of overlap with him uh, among our voters, but some divergence as well. I don't want to have my race be about Donald Trump, but his endorsement was a nice surprise, so I said thank you. What are the practical consequences of it? Like, um, does it scare away money from primary opponents? Does it actually change your poll numbers? What does it actually mean on the ground as a political matter? I mean, probably the single biggest thing it meant on the ground was the story that had dominated Nebraska for two weeks just went away, uh-huh. which is that I declined to be a co-chair of his campaign. And no prominent Republican in Nebraska had done that. Uh-huh. And, you know media that's bored tries to find a way to take one story and make it into five stories. And that had happened. So, you know, I declined to to be a co-chair of the Trump campaign in Nebraska because uh, the way that it had been presented to me is the you know, uh, governing season was basically over and we're moving into a campaign. And this would be sort of a pledge to not disagree uh-huh. uh, with the administration. And I can't I don't that's not reconcilable with how I see the job no. um, I think three separate but equal branches need to be checking and balancing one another and some of our arguing is in private and on Hong Kong we'd been disagreeing in public and when I, I couldn't reconcile uh, a non-disagreement pledge and so I humbly said you know I'm looking forward to having the Republican ticket move forward not a switch to socialism in America but I'll decline to to be on this committee and then it became a series of follow-on stories well did your other members of the Nebraska delegation did they sign some non-disagreement pledge I don't think they had the same conversation with the Trump administration yeah. that had been had with me. So that story had dominated Nebraska politics for 10 plus days uh-huh. and that kind of evaporated. I think that's the only real consequence we've seen. Were you facing a primary challenger? I, ha- I have one, yeah. yeah. Who, um, he was, must not have been happy about this news. I think he still has lots of Trump clothing and I don't own any. Uh-huh. And I think he's still wearing it every day. And You are, just for the record, wearing a red tie but it is not like going six inches past your belt buckle, so it's not qu- at quite Trumpy. Uh, okay, I, uh... well, that's that's sort of the way Trump wears it, right? He gets these extra long ties. I remember um, a friend of mine in 2016 went to CPAC and he came back and says, "Oh man, it's becoming Trumpy. All these 20 year old children of the corn, they're all wearing their red ties way past their their flies." Because uh, <laughs> that's that's the how Trump does it. But anyway, I know you're wearing red tie because because I'm a minimalist and I don't own many other colors. Yeah, well, you know, and also it it pops on a podcast, so that's nice. Um, I was gonna wear my Spicer shirt, but I'll. Uh... All right. So among you know among the many, I, I happen to live in a world full of many Ben Sass fans. 
You know all seven of them? I do. There, there are dozens of us. <laughs> um, and Twice uh, as many people as read my dissertation. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, there were uh, the other source of consternation or concern or certainly discussion was your decision to support the emergency funding of the emergency declaration for building the wall. Um, uh, first of all, can you just give a sense of what your thinking was there? And two, if you had known what was actually going to have money diverted from it, would you still have voted the way you did? Yeah. Um, so let's do the big one first because that's that's the longer topic. But then the, the second one is um, still being netted out with the Pentagon, I think. So that's shorter but but – grayer. So here's here's the big view that I have. Um, the distribution of labor between the legislative and executive branch is a total mess, mm-hmm. and it has been for a long time, and I think it's gotten worse decade over decade for 90 years. And I think America would be healthier if the legislature had more power and the executive branch understood that administering, faithfully executing the laws is the main responsibility. Although you did uh, say earlier, and I didn't take the bait, that we had three separate but equal branches. In the All right. Agreement. It's another fight we could have yeah. uh, or argument. Um, obviously, uh, there's a whole bunch of stuff that happens in the executive branch right now that are functionally legislative powers and should not be happening in the executive branch. That's a different question than this. what this vote was, and I'm sure mm-hmm. we're going to do it again. I think we might be doing it again next week. It's a resolution of condemnation of the administration doing what they did with a power that they have based on crappy law, but mm-hmm. based on law, um, and about a topic where I agree that there is an emergency at the border. So I, I viewed it as kind of a three-ish part test. Number one, do I think there's an emergency at the border? There clearly is. Uh, fentanyl crossings between ports of entry are up 380% over 24 months. So as an objective matter, there is a crisis at the border. Um, secondarily, does the administration have the authority to do this? I think the 1976 uh, National Emergencies Act gives them that power. But it's important to know what was happening in that moment. You had all the overreach of Watergate. All the executive powers of Kennedy, Johnson, and Nixon regularly using the IRS uh, to beat up their political opponents, for instance. Tons of corruption in the executive agencies. And the Watergate Babies uh, Congress of 1974 came in and tried to grab every power back for the Congress. And they overreached badly that it took away the ability of an administration, of an executive branch to act quickly. Mm -hmm. So the old Aristotelian idea that committees or groups deliberate better than individuals and individuals Individuals act more expeditiously than committees. You know what this is like when you're trying to pick a movie to go to after dinner and you get 12 people quasi drunk on the sidewalk. So I think that the, the 1976 granting of powers back to the executive branch was way too broad. But I think the administration has the power to do what they did. Mm-hmm. And they did it about something where I agree that there is an emergency. Now, do I think that is a good idea? Hell no. I want the Congress to claw back these powers. And here's what's really bizarre about the way this debate has happened. When you talk to Democrats on the Hill in private, and one of the reasons D.C. doesn't work is because there's almost never any in private talk. Everything is in front of a camera, which is one of the most obvious and basic reasons we don't get anything done because people are just performing 99% of the time. When you talk to Democrats in private, they agree with the theory 
that the legislature should recapture some of its historic and constitutional powers. They just only in practice want to say it in public about Donald Trump. And so to me, this debate shouldn't have been just about does the president have these powers and is there an emergency at the border? It should have been why has Congress punted powers to the executive branch for decades? And I would be a willing participant even if there were only a couple of us. And I know there'd be more than that. Mike Lee has been a leader on this for a long time. We should be having a conversation that has Republicans and Democrats in the Congress, not talking chiefly about Republicans versus Democrats, either in the Congress or in the executive branch, but people who want to defend the prerogatives of Article 1 versus Article 2. And you can't find those conversation partners with Democrats. What they want is to just use this as a bludgeon to say there isn't an emergency at the border or to use it as a political issue to say Trump is going to say stuff that sounds pretty dang anti-Hispanic. But they don't really want to have a conversation about regaining the powers. So I voted against the condemnation of the administration for using powers that I think they have about an emergency that I think exists. But I'd rather get on to the next topic, which is Let's claw back these powers. Okay. And on the would you have voted for it given what the money is being grabbed from? Uh, I think the appropriations process sucks right now, and there ought to be great clarity about what stuff the administration can reappropriate. I think a lot of the monies that have been taken have been taken from accounts that need the money more. Um, But I think that the administration has this reprogramming authority about most of the monies they're using. I just think these are prudential questions, and prudential questions should overwhelmingly be solved by a Congress that stands to more rapid accountability than a White House. So 435 of the 535 people I work with are supposed to always be fireable in less than 24 months. Mm -hmm. That's where prudential decisions should be made. So voters have the power, not executive agencies. Um, Okay. I debate you about the the wall stuff a bit, but Aston answered so we can move on to more thrilling. There's a a parent that coaches in both our Little League Baseball and our Flag Football League that our eight-year-old plays in. And anytime his kid starts to ask a question, the dad just shouts, Aston answered! Aston answered! Like, shut the hell up, kid. I've already answered that question six months ago. It's a really nice device. It's Uh like not telling your kid they can't ever speak. You just say, this has already been resolved in the past and we'll be moving along. Um, You said asked and answered. So maybe it's because I just wrote my LA Times column about this, but the what you were saying about the Democrats just wanting to use these rules as a sort of constitution for me, but not for the or executive power for me, but not for the kind of thing. The Democratic debate is fascinating to me now, or the Democratic primary is fascinating to me now because I think my record on being a critic of Donald Trump and his sort of thumbless grasp of the Constitution and all of these kinds of things is... I've never heard the term thumbless. Um, uh, I'm going to use that adjective 15 times tonight. <laughs> well, I mean, it, it, That's it, before it, it whiskey. works, right? Um, and uh, the... is my Anyway, my record on criticizing Trump about this stuff and his lack of knowledge about civics, you know, I, I appreciate that he wanted to defend Article 12 of the Constitution. But the... You, what is like Elizabeth Warren's excuse? I'm like, we know why Donald Trump doesn't know about the Constitution because he literally doesn't know about the Constitution and he never pretended when he says he knows more about the Constitution than anybody, but he literally says that about everything. But we kind of know who Donald Trump is. Elizabeth Warren taught law at Harvard and David French wrote this wonderful piece explaining how virtually her entire agenda is either illegal or unconstitutional or obviously both. And... Kamala Harris, when when Joe Biden, who who had in the lottery 
the idea that Joe Biden was going to be the paladin of protecting our constitutional obligations or something. But when Joe Biden wasn't talking like a patient at the home who wandered off into the snow. Um, the chain and blade fight with corn pop. Let me um, unbutton my shirt a little bit more. I got some white old man cleavage hair that I'd like to have show while I talk about a fight. Because I could take corn pop. I could wrap the chain around his neck. Because what corn pop was doing is he took the straight blade. He smashed it on the curb. He dipped it in the water. It began to rust and our fight was on. You um. You, that was uh, the best clip my kids have sent me in the last 24 hours. You should make this as like a part of our civics to have kids memorize this and recited it, like high school assemblies and stuff. Um, it was very good. Uh, but like, so Don, uh, Joe Biden says you can't do all this stuff by executive order. It's unconstitutional. And Kamala Harris says, hey, Joe, instead of saying, no, we can't, how about we say, yes, we can. And then she did her obligatory somewhat unhinged laughing at her own joke for a minute. And then she demagogued Biden by pointing out the victims of violence. And I don't like the victims of gun violence any more than anybody else. But like it's it, it was very reminiscent of Donald Trump using the victims of criminally illegal immigrants to make an argument for for policy things, you know, is an appeal to emotions. It is amazing when you take the blinders off and you look at what the Democratic Party is doing. It's very much like that line from Nietzsche, you know, when you you have to be careful when fighting monsters not to turn into a monster. I mean, what they think of Donald Trump, they are proposing a serious policy of just suspending the Constitution, of suspending, uh, you know, uh, judicial opinions. And and they're running for monarch. And the Democrats don't care while at the same time they are screaming bloody murder about how Donald Trump wants to be a monarch. It's yeah. weird. I mean, I know you've told me before that listeners mock me with a bingo card that says if I say civics, they, uh -huh. they have to drink. But I mean, I think that woke politics is- You also the third most conservative guy in the Senate's on the card, just so you know. <laughs> <laughs> woke politics is a religion that lacks any real thought about eschatology. So you can just do it all right now. Right. And obviously, we have a crisis that a lot of people think we have a majoritarian system. And that's what you hear, I think, from Elizabeth Warren. I, I want to, in full confession, admit I haven't watched one minute of any of the Democratic presidential debates. Um, but I've read some stories about them. So I'm, I'm not exactly current on what she said uh -huh. in last week's debate, but it does seem like a complete indifference to the Constitution, even though you can say the word Constitution all the time. Because constitution on the left usually just means majoritarianism with the presumption, right. presumption that they're always going to have the power. Our system is fundamentally anti-majoritarian. The American Democratic Republican tradition is about the the protections of a constitution that limit government because of what we believe about the natural rights of people which predate government. And so the word constitution on the left, as I hear it being used, usually just sounds like a placeholder for the term majoritarianism. Yeah. And they think the end justifies the means. And so the executive branch can do whatever it wants because the electoral college is wrong and lifetime appointments to the courts are wrong. And uh, the Senate and any, uh, you know, super majoritarian rules that might have been in place over time to slow down deliberation and make it actually work to refine legislation to something better than just the immediate passions of the mob. All of those things are viewed as bad because they have certainty that the majority's with them. But I think on most of the issues that you hear the left going nutty in these debates, they don't have anything like a majority with them. Yeah. But that's that's one of the weird this is a point Ramesh Panuru makes is that one of the weird things about our politics is both sides think they're in the majority. 
right? And so when I think they, there's no majority about hardly anything, right? I know, but but the, they they think they're in the majority, and so they think whenever they lose a political battle, it was illegitimate that they lost. Um, and I think what also feeds that is that. Uh, you have politicians promising impossible things. Yep. And when you promise impossible things, you are basically implying that they're possible. And then because they're not, they will fail. Right. And the assumption that people have isn't that they were, oh, they must have been impossible. It's that, oh, no, this system will not allow it. And there must be nefarious, you know, weather controlling forces or, you know, globalists that are pulling strings or the deep state or dark money that is preventing all the good things from happening. Right. And, um, and so it's, it's bizarre. Every side thinks they are the, both sides think they have the majority. Both sides of the culture war keep thinking they're losing and, but they're, they're all entitled to all of their wishes possible. How do you get out of that? Well, don't, don't you? I, I think we're going to have to develop new habits of media consumption and deliberation, right? Like I, I don't mean to sound like um, a, a one-note drum, but I really do think a huge part of this is the way that we're consuming media. Mm -hmm. That people are their con our consciousness is distant rather than local and deep, and it's impatient and it's immediatist, and there's no sense because there's so many media cycles every seventeen minutes. There's no sense you're ever going to be held to account, especially not a politician on the left is ever going to be held to account for anything they say two or three days from now, let alone two or three years from now. So you can just make all these promises to try to win in this moment by motivating the passionate young voter organizers. And then later when it doesn't come true, as you say, you got to figure out who to scapegoat and who to blame. And so it must be procedural encumbrances against a fast moving government. The reality is government just can't affect most of the things that these people want to bring about. Right. But I, I think I think we live in a moment where it's possible to have a global shared media cycle every few minutes in a way that just doesn't comport with the human soul, right? Which is so much of what's wrong about this is, is a sense that if you consume faster, somehow the world will actually undo all the problems that go back to the Garden of Eden. Mm -hmm. And it simply isn't true, which is one of the reasons why, you know, I've, I've had three Twitter fasts of many months in the last 18 months, such that I looked back the other day and I'd, I've been on Twitter less than five months in the last 18 months. And one of the reasons why, despite the fact that I love sports Twitter, is that political Twitter is so filled with weirdos mm. who any time you say anything, someone can say, well, why don't you care about Josefina who just got run over by a car in Rio? Right. Like you, you have some moral obligation to respond to something that is far away and has nothing to do with you because they were able to see a headline about some terrible thing that had happened that moment. Humans can't live like that. Yeah. And our politics don't work partly because we're infused with the CNN, Chiron, Twitter, and cameras in every room on the hill. So there aren't really serious conversations happening hardly anywhere because because people are worried that they're going to get in trouble for not having responded to the crisis of the minute. Well, that's BS. Humans um, can't do that. No, it's funny. I mean, it's one of the things other than, you know, physique that you have in common with John Podoritz is um, – that... Don't insult him like that. <laughs> <laughs> um, that you both fled Twitter and it's made John a much happier guy. Um um, it's made me a little sad, by the way. I'm, I'm, there are a bunch of things I miss about it. I yeah. mean, it's adult video games is mostly what Twitter is. Yeah. But my kids, we, we live in a rural place, so we're in the car a lot. And my kids and I, when we see something funny or my eight-year-old brings home a dead animal, like – 
the adult video game of Twitter, uh-huh. we think is kind of fun to share with another sure. couple dozen of our friends. I don't care about – I mean I care, but I don't really care about the – the big follower group that I use Twitter as a distribution tool to a handful of families that we're friends with. And so we feel like we're not doing that and we're missing out on sports Twitter. But political Twitter is such a toxic place that I think it warps people's consciousness into thinking that that's representative of the real world. And your and my friend Arthur Brooks has those stats that show yeah. what's it like uh, 13% of Americans on Twitter are on Twitter and 80% or something of all tweets are from less than 2% of the people on Twitter. Yeah. That is just not reality, but it creates a feedback loop um, that never really makes any progress. It's just rage. So I want to come back to this in one second, but you did say something that I think some listeners are going to be curious about. Um, when you say your eight-year-old brings dead animals home, are these animals that he killed? Are these animals that he found? Is this like a roadkill meal? Um, is this one of the warning signs for serial killers? I mean, I just we wanted some context about this. All of the above. Okay. Yeah. All right. Okay. Yeah. I've been watching a lot of Mindhunter lately, and so I, I'm worried when I hear about small children. My, my, like, my daughters are 18 and 15, and one of the things, I hope she's not a listener to your show. She's definitely not a listener to your show. My wife called me last night and said, I can't take it anymore. I can't talk to middle kid anymore. Mm-hmm. I won't name her since she's about to get publicly ridiculed. She goes, you need to get her on the phone and you need to tell her, this is my wife, get out of my business. It's my choice about whether or not Breck is allowed to kill turtles tonight. <laughs> <laughs> There's a whole bunch more context we need to unpack there. There was no intentional killing of turtles, uh-huh. but there was enough turtle capture happening last night at our house that my 15-year-old believed that the 8-year-old was going to be responsible for the expiration of many turtles. I see. I can, turtle capture sounds like a weird zoological version of public choice theory, <laughs> um, and I'm not sure I want to explore that too much in depth. But um, – have you weighed in or followed? I know you've got other things to do, you know, with all the runzas and whatnot. Um, uh, maybe we figured out a way to make the title of this one, Runzas of the Bull. But no, but uh, the debate, the David French, Sora Bamari stuff, nationalism versus classical liberalism stuff. Uh, I, the reason I bring it up in this context, it's a running theme on this podcast, so you don't have to get the, into the weeds on it. But I have. But I think a lot of people would love to know where you come down on it. Um but when you talk about the Twitter thing, this is one of my peeves is that one of the reasons why this nationalism thing has become such a thing, at least in the Sorab version of it, <clears throat> is that social media makes it feel like we all live in a very small town. Yeah. And we get very, very angry when somebody in our small town lives wrong or thinks wrong. And if... I'm sure in the 19th century, someone did something worse than a drag queen story hour 3,000 miles away from them, but they never heard about it. They therefore didn't care about it. By the time word got to them, the strange man who wore a dress and read a book had probably given up the drag. Who who knows, right? right? But because this stuff is so immediate, it's like the the Covington kids thing. It puts the stuff right in your face, and it feels like they're, 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 they're violating sacred ground in your own home when in reality they're very, very far away. And 
that encourages this notion of nationalism and conformity that we all have to live the same way in a giant nation, which was never the founding father's intent. That's really well said. So um, before we talk about French and Amari for uh-huh. a second, um, have you read Ryan Holiday's new book, Stillness is the Key? No. So he does you know, modern stoicism stuff. He has this very interesting little vignette that he opens one of his chapters with where Napoleon prohibited his executive assistant from opening his mail, any letter they would get for 21 days. And then they would open it. And then the assistant would decide, is it urgent? Do we have to run in and interrupt Napoleon, whatever long-term planning operation? I just hope no one sent him a puppy. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, I'm sorry. Wedding crashers line there. (laughs) You know that you're not keeping that puppy. Um, What Napoleon was saying, and we're not affirming all of his Uh management techniques, but what he was saying was the vast majority of the stuff that I have to be reactive to I really don't have to be reactive to, and the vast majority of it will solve itself quickly. Right. If, it, if it's really important, it might still last three or four weeks from now, and then maybe I should respond to it. But uh, Holiday makes the point that 70-plus percent of all the mail they opened, they just threw away because it was three weeks old and it had resolved itself and it wasn't worth interrupting the proactive stuff they were doing. And I think that proactive versus reactive thing, it's one of the things that is wrong in America. Lots of people's families are show right now. Like there's a lot of stuff falling apart in America. And instead of responding to what we should be dealing with locally to make sure our kids are better prepared to navigate an economy that's going to be really disruptive in five and 10 years, we can be enraged about something that someone else did somewhere on Twitter. And you and I have talked about this before, but my grandpa, when I was a kid, never went to college, but he it was the fundraiser for a local college. And he traveled six weeks out of every six months. He'd do a six-week East Coast tour, six-week West Coast tour, meet with all the alumni of the college and and raise money for scholarships for poor farm kids to come to the school. And one of the most vivid images I have of my childhood is twice a year, you'd go over to meet, greet grandma and grandpa as their big Chevy Impala would roll back up into the driveway. And you'd go into their kitchen and the neighbor kid that got their mail every day would have made a stack of the local newspapers. Yeah. And the Fremont Tribune, the daily paper in our town, six weeks of it would stand like to my chest. Mm-hmm. And grandpa viewed it as a moral obligation that he had to read six weeks of that paper every six months when he got back. Why? Because he needed to read the obituaries. Mm -hmm. Because he needed to read all the little league scores so he'd known which kids in the neighborhood had had great moments and he could congratulate them and which kids had had a tragic character building experience that their, their team crapped out in the playoffs, whatever. That stuff, that journalism, that news, even at six weeks old, mattered. Mm -hmm. There there was something happening there that meant the information we were taking in was information we needed. How many people think if you go camping for two weeks and you come back, you need to go to your DVR and watch 10 days of CNN screaming chirons? Of course it doesn't matter to you what nonsense they were screaming was going to end the world eight or nine or 10 days ago. And I think the pace of our news consumption is really, really destroying us. Both it undermines the ability for politics to focus on a small number of long-term things. But more importantly, it allows all of us individually to escape the actual callings and vocations and moral obligations we have in our neighborhood. And so uh, I'll just, I know that I'm being told by my team that McConnell's just called a vote, so I'm going to have to run from the room in a minute. But on on French Amari, I would say... That's code for open a new bag, a white bag, right? Of coke. Excuse me? Sorry, never go on. Okay, go. <laughs> oh, yeah. Cocaine Mitch. I, I, I have a great tank top that a dude on the street gave me of Mitch McConnell snorting the, the white powder. Um, I'm 80% French. Uh-huh. 5% Amari uh-huh. and 15% really, really dissatisfied with missing pieces of the debate. Uh-huh. So I, I think the great thing that 
David is right about and those of us who think we're part of the classical liberal tradition believe in, if we're anti-majoritarians, it means that in this weird coalition that is the right, I'm not going to trust that big business is going to defend federalism. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to trust that populists can possibly defend free speech because they're majoritarians. And so what I think my obligation is as a principled pluralist is try to maintain a public square where free speech, press, assembly, religion are affirmed even when I differ with the people. What's great about America is we don't hit each other in the head with hammers. We protect each other's rights to argue with words. But most of those arguments happen in books or around dinner tables or when you're inviting people to church. Like Twitter is not really changing many people's minds. And so I think there's something big that's missing in their debate right now. But if you got to pick between those two... I'm I'm with French uh, substantively, and I think in the debate he just obviously kicked butt. Yeah, yeah. Um, I know you have to go. Just one little gift to you. Uh, if you don't want to on the hustings be quoting Napoleon uh, <laughs> to make this point about leadership yeah, stuff, thanks. Uh, the, the great Calvin Coolidge, praise be upon him, um, said that if you see ten problems rolling downhill towards you, do nothing because nine will roll into a ditch before they reach you. That's good. Um, That's so. Uh, Praise be to Cal. Um, Senator Sask, nice to have you here. Thanks Welcome for the invite. I hope you won't uh, uh, take so long the next time to come back. I'll bring you a runza when you're in North Carolina. Actually, I, I would like one. I would like one. Okay, we'll do it. Um, Thanks, dude. Okay, so uh, Senator Sass has left the studio and the building and probably the neighborhood by now. Uh, there was a bit of a delay between uh, his departure and this recording. Um, Jack, what did you think about that? It was kind of nice to have him back, wasn't it? Yeah, I looked it up. The last time he was here was November November 2018. The episode... Reco- that long. The, yeah, the recorded episode came out on November 2nd, 2018. Wow. So it was good to see him again. It was. I mean, I, I've seen him since... I haven't. Um, but uh, that was mostly, you know, hunting humans for sport and that kind of thing. So Was he one of the humans or one of the hunters? Um, everyone was 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 human. That's the whole point of... Or... One of the victims. One of the hunted. Yeah. Uh, no, no, he was a, he was a hunter. Um, no, uh, I'm glad I got to ask him about that kind of stuff. I, this is... I mean, this really gets to the heart of why I really don't like to become friends with politicians because... You then, because of my day job, I kind of got to ask them questions that may not be in their interest to be asked. To say nothing of your night job. That's true. And, um, uh, but I'm glad I got to ask them about the emergency funding of the wall thing. I'm not entirely persuaded, but I don't want to revisit all of that because it's exhausting and I'm too tired. Um, and, uh. There is ample skepticism out there about how surprised they actually were about that endorsement. But I take him at his word. I think they probably did not know it was actually coming. You also hear rumors around town that there are a shockingly large number of tweets that actually are not written by Donald Trump. And <laughs> that doesn't mean he didn't approve it, you know, and all that kind of stuff. But there's sometimes when the syntax is too good. Uh, or too bad. Or too bad. That's right. Sometimes it, it seems like, uh, you know, sort of like, I don't know, like. Joe Biden trying to speak jive. You know, it feels too forced when they try to get the syntax all messed up. But uh, uh, anyway, you know, he, I think he's sincere about the endorsement thing. And it was good to have him back. So last night we did this 
this roast thing in New York at the Plaza Hotel. And uh, it was fun. I think it was one of the... I actually haven't been to that many of them, but I've gotten play-by-plays about pretty much all of them. And I think it was one of the best ones. Andrew Claven, our friend, um, really knocked it out of the park. Dana Perino did really well, um, but she just she's just not plausible as a mean person. It just doesn't work, you know. Um, uh, Ted Cruz had some funny lines and was very animated. Uh, there was this must have been an exhausting for the animators. Yeah, it really was. It was um, it was wild, and um, I think I did okay. You know, I had some fun fun lines in there, but uh, did you get a chance to mention that? He outranked you on the anti-Semitism re- uh, receiving email. No, I mean part of the problem was tweets. So part of the problem with going last before Shapiro is that uh, all of pretty much all of the obvious jokes or sources of joke material had already been used. Uh huh. And um, I did say that you know I, one of the lines I had was that um, this is the most impressive gathering of Jews outside of Global Weather Command. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and then later on, when I when I pivoted to Shapiro, because uh, I did this thing where I, I I called on the members of the board of Commentary Magazine and the people and the supporters of the magazine in the audience um, that next year uh, the roast should be of John Podoritz. I think in his heart of hearts that's what John wants, but he can't propose it, and people would. People would fight with broken bottles and sticks to be one of the roasters. And <laughs> as I put it in, in the roast last night, who wouldn't leap at the opportunity to publicly criticize John Podoritz without fear of being called an anti-Semite? Uh, or without fear of interruption by John Podoritz. Well, that was one of my other things. Is like, where else can you get to speak for 10 minutes in front of John Podoritz without getting interrupted? But, um, but lot, <laughs> lots of people made that joke because there were a lot of people who listened to the commentary podcast. And it's funny because it's true. <laughs> um, but then I had this thing where I said that... Uh, Please don't kill me, John. I'm sorry. Uh, when I turned to um, Shapiro, I talked about how, you know, it was like, speaking of anti-Semitism, which was always a fun line to you, <laughs> uh, I said that... Uh, Shapiro is probably is arguably the most hated Jew in America, um, at least since Jeffrey Epstein, Jeffrey Epstein, quote unquote, died. And I used air quotes around it. Yeah. And I was like, well played, Global Weather Command. Well played. <laughs> um, so anyway, it was fun. Uh, hopefully the comment pod will release the video that they made introducing Shapiro. Which must have cost a fortune. It was amazing. I mean, it was like legit amazing. It wasn't like the one they did for me, which was just a bunch of clips from like special report and whatnot that you found. It was of like, you laughing, of me laughing with my you know quasi Scooby Doo laugh. And uh, this was like high end production values. It was like a musical theater thing, and it was fascinating and really, really well done. Um, so I don't know if they're going to release that or not, but. Um, Pod could actually like sell ads for it on the commentary website if he wanted to. It, I mean, it was really good. It was really impressive. And uh, so that's sort of about it. Anything else that we need to be um, discussing? Uh, well, I know in the recent episode you were stressing that you wanted uh, Madeline Cairns to be on the show. I saw that you had her on your little niche podcast. Yeah, I, I got her first. Son of a But you got her by Skype or something, right? No, I was able to do it in person. Really? She, she was in town? in town, yeah. Damn it. Yeah. How how mellifluous was she? 
Oh, quite. Yeah. And, and I, I got her to sing as well. Did you really? She's a trained singer. Yeah, I know. I know. Um, yeah, so. Oh, I hate you now. <laughs> um, or, uh, now. I, I hate you more. <laughs> um, uh, well, congratulations, you rat bastard. And Thanks. Um, uh, Young Americans. Youth, youth for Brexit, question mark. It's the episode. Um, yeah, we'll put in the show notes way down at the bottom. <laughs> That's where it belongs. It's where I belong. Um, uh, yeah, so like, you know, but like Shapiro was, you know, when, when he got to go at the end, he was, took some shots at me, which is totally fair and all that. But one of the things he was talking about how like down I am these days, you know, my podcast is called The Remnant. My book is called Suicide of the West, you know, um, and then. Uh, Cliff Asnes tells me about how like this podcast is too much of a downer, so we got we got to look for some um, some more upbeat opportunities. Um, hmm. I just don't know. You know, it's not really how I'm wired. Yeah, I mean, forced happiness is even worse than it is. Uh, unforced sadness, I think. Yeah, I but mean... there are things to be happy about. We're alive. Uh, <laughs> um, that's the first thing that comes to mind. Um, you have lots of frescas in front of you. Uh, Something to be happy they're about. All, they're all empty. Um, but they were full, and they're now they're in your body. Yeah, I don't think this is a fruitful line of conversation. <laughs> um, all right, so anyway, uh, thanks everybody for listening. Uh, some exciting new developments in the new business venture will be announced shortly-ish. You've been, that's like, this is like, uh, I'm sure listeners at this point feel like first century Christians uh, or second century. Well, probably second century. Well, no, first century. Immediately after the crucifixion and resurrection, they were all like, okay, one generation, that's it. Yeah. And then, but you, for real, real things coming soon. Real things coming soon. Um, I'm not sure that I want to uh, have to carry the burden of being compared to the returning Messiah in terms of what we're going to be able to deliver. Yeah, it's kind of blasphemous. Is that the thing I, I immediately thought of? Oh, well. Um, it's just casual blasphemy. Well, I mean, you're you're like Sean Spicer. You're standing for Christ on this podcast. Yeah. Um, so anyway. <laughs> uh, um, and if you want to subscribe to the G-File, go to Reagan35x.com. Um, I met someone who's a big fan. He said, talked to me about how much he misses the G-File, and it's so sad that I stopped writing it. So there are people out there who don't even know that the G-File still exists. Yeah, that's really – that's unfortunate. You can, been, it, it, there has been no, no cessation. Yeah, it has been completely continuous through our various me- – the means that we've established. There has been a G-File. There was no break. There was a, there was a remnant break. That's right. No G-File break. So – uh, you can subscribe at Reagan35x for a little while longer, but that site is going to be replaced by something else sooner rather than later, um, depending on what kind of time scale you're talking about. Will you keep the rights to Reagan35x.com? I think we'll own it. Yeah, I mean, why would we give that up? It's you know. Yeah, I mean, like I would. That that's 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 gold. Um, uh, tweet about us on Twitter at Jonah Remnant. Uh, send us an email at. Uh, remnantpod at gmail.com and um, I have no idea what's happening next week but we'll see you then oh I do what's that um, should I tell you I guess should we should we make these should we be transparent about this I guess we can make the decision later what's happening next week um, Mike Gallagher can do the half-baked ideas episode this time 
next Tuesday. Really? Uh-huh. It's very exciting. All right. So and I, my calendar is free on Tuesday, I assume? Yeah. Oh, okay. So there's still time for people to send more half-baked ideas. This is very exciting. I am hearing about this is breaking news for me. This is very exciting. Okay. I'll keep this in the episode then. This, um, this is authentic. This, this, is, this is true. You know, this is true podcast joy here. This is not, you know. <laughs> Yay. Happiness. Uh, so uh, for those who don't know. Mike Gallagher, second two-term congressman from Wisconsin's 8th District. Where he, the Packers are. Where the Packers are. He's a big fan of half-baked ideas. I kind of like quarter-baked ideas, but we're going to meet somewhere in the middle about sort of goofy, strange, funny, interesting, quirky, outside-the-Overton-window ideas that you think would make the country or the world um, or anything else better, you know, and, uh, you know, stuff like my desire for letters of mark and reprisal for hackers that we can bring that back or uh, my I want to bring back the Vatican armies, the papal armies. Um, uh, Gallagher is more of a half-baked guy. So he's like you he want chin-up bars in every airport and people can get um, points towards better seats or boarding or whatever based upon how many chin-ups they do. Um, I've been an advocate for many years, really a leader in the field of uh, airborne laser volcano lancing, um, because that's really the only way to sort of let off the pressure before these calderas and whatnot destroy the planet. Yeah. In fact, every summer when, when we have a new intern, I draw a diagram of this for the intern to explain the concept. Oh, OK. Cool. Yeah. 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 We just need more powerful lasers. But that's true about so many things. <laughs> um, what is that not true? Of? Exactly. So anyway, send your ideas to uh, remnantpod at gmail. The, the remnantpod. The remnantpod at gmail.com. Um, and uh, we'll talk about all of them or at least a lot of them or some of them uh, next week with uh, Congressman Gallagher. And until then, I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. We're not recording yet, right? Um, <laughs> Jack, are we recording? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it, we it's not were. live.